Um, many of us in this room have stories of how the Terpstras have affected our lives, or you wouldn't be here on a Tuesday night. Uh, and if you've never heard Dave speak, uh, I'm very jealous of you because I wish sometimes I could go back in time to the moment when I hadn't heard him speak yet. I had the privilege of um, growing up in, in a very formative time in my life, showing up at TNL and growing up hearing Dave talk. Um, I didn't, I never knew TNL outside of Dave being the teaching pastor. I was late to the game. I didn't show up till 2001 um, when he became the teaching pastor. Uh, and, and Dave's teaching was very formative in my life and is, he's one of the main people that uh, really inspired me to pursue ministry. And so I, I feel very blessed and honored to now call him a friend uh, and a partner in ministry. Um, and so if you would, Dave, it's gonna take you a long time to get up here from all the way back there, but would you please welcome Dave Terpster? Well, this is a treat for me. I, gosh, I love TNL. You know, like it, everybody else has stories of just things, this, this, this church that God has used to influence our lives. Um, I'm not gonna gush and, and say all of them right now. I will say, I'm glad Jared's in the room tonight. Somebody told me, I looked, actually three people told me I look the exact same. I look like I've always looked. And my hair is much grayer like Jared's. And I now dress like Jared. So it, it, it would not be a Dave Terpster talk at TNL if Jared was not made fun of. So there we go. <laughs> um, tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little crazy. I want to talk about doing evangelism in Colorado in 2023. That's, that seems like a topic that people are not dying to pick up on right now. Evangelism in the United States right now is not a hot topic. Nobody wants to talk about this. Why in the world would you come all the way from Africa to talk about evangelism in America? That's a great question, and I promise I'll answer it. But just to make sure we're clear, when I talk about evangelism, I, I'm just meaning sharing your faith. I know there's probably technical definitions out there. Seminary graduates can parse this and pick it apart for us. Let's just talk about sharing our faith with somebody else. That's what, that's what I mean when I say evangelism. And so I want to start with a story. Um, several years ago, my business partner in, in Mozambique, he was a missionary, decided that he wanted to go to business school in America and kind of head in a different direction. So he went to Columbia Business School in Manhattan. And now he came back to Mozambique and he sits in really important meetings with important people about lots of money and he's no longer a missionary. And so one of his business school friends was coming to visit two years ago. And he said, hey, I want you to meet her. Her name's Jackie. She's coming. And um, she's, got, she's kind of a spiritual person. She's going to have some questions. So it'd be great if you could come and answer some of those questions for her. So I said, no problem. Thursday night coming over, I'll meet Jackie. I get a text on Tuesday. Hey, do you have time to come over and meet Jackie? I'm like, yeah, I'm coming on Thursday. Yeah, she's got a lot of questions. I need you over here right now. And I'm like, you used to be a missionary. This is kind of punting. And okay, fine. So I went over. Jackie had a lot of questions. Jackie's awesome. She wanted to talk about Buddhism and all of the stuff that she was learning in Buddhism. So we talked about that for a while. I talked about Christianity. She knew I was a Christian. Just sort of shared some stories back and forth. I told her what I liked about Buddhism, the, the thoughts that I thought were, were difficult about that. And 
as I was getting to know Jackie, I realized just what a pointless effort this was going to be. Because see, Jackie is a Columbia Business School graduate. She lives in New York, worked for Bain Consulting. And those guys like eat people alive every day. You go to a performance review weekly at that business. This is not like soft, easy sort of work. And so I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, this is a colossal waste of time. And then we had a couple more conversations. And then after lunch, she said, and I quote, Christians are strange and inexplicable, and I'd never be allowed to return to New York if I became one. And that sort of sealed the deal, right? This is the definition of a waste of time. Yet she got my WhatsApp number, which is what foreigners use to message each other. Um, She starts texting me more questions. I kept answering the questions. I I thought they would stop. They didn't stop. They got more persistent. I'm like, all right, let's just put this at an end. Read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. She did. Overnight has all of these questions for me the next day. Like, all right, read Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. She does, has questions for me after that. I'm like, all right, read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. That's not like culturally relevant anymore. She did. She's like, oh my gosh, why has nobody ever told me this stuff before? I'm like, this is not happening right now. I'm talking to the guys in my Bible study, other missionaries going, New Yorkers don't convert to Christianity in Maputo, Mozambique after reading C.S. Lewis. This is just silly. Anyway, she leaves. She, um, she goes back to the U.S. This is all happening during COVID. She goes back to the U.S. She's still texting. She's still calling. And the questions are getting deeper and more profound. And I'm like, I see where this is going. And then at the end of one of these conversations, she says, what are my friends going to say if I become a Christian? I don't know how often you get to share your faith, but when somebody says, what are my friends going to say if I become a Christian? They're going to become a Christian. This is like their last step. This is the like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this, but I don't know what's going to happen. And I remember she said that and I hung up the phone and I looked at Amy and I'm like, holy cow, Jackie's going to become a Christian. Now we're in church, so we're going to pretend I said, holy cow, Jackie's going to become a Christian. She did. I mean, I was shocked. Evangelism isn't supposed to work right now. Nobody likes the church. Nobody likes Christians. New Yorkers do not start following Jesus in the middle of a successful career. Movers and shakers move and shake other people. They are not the ones who are moved or shaken. And yet Jackie was. So what in the world's going on? Well, let me tell you a little bit about my story. I know not everybody in the room knows. Um, I was teaching pastor here at TNL from 01 till a little before we left to go to Mozambique in 2010. I work with sex trafficking survivors with an organization called Free the Girls. I work with homeless youth through Armadura Gym. And both of those things kind of need less of my time these days. So I'm now a professor at a Christian university training up a new generation of pastors. My wife, Amy, teaches at a Christian school. She works with families um, who have kids with special needs in Mozambique, which is a lot harder than having kids with special needs in, let's say, Littleton. Um, And so she's a a champ for doing that. And so we left in 2010. Some things have changed in America since 2010. Have you noticed? We left two years before, let's say, Obama changed his stance on gay marriage. A couple other things have happened in our culture as well. 
Have you heard of something called Me Too? Black Lives Matter? COVID? There's been some presidents that some people have had some opinions about over the last 10 years. The culture has shifted. Can we all agree the culture in America, the culture of Colorado has shifted in the last 10 years? I'm seeing nodding heads. Yes, we can all agree that is the case. So how does someone who's been gone for 13 years come back here and explain how to share your faith in Colorado? Colorado changed, and I know it has. And that's why I think maybe someone who spent a decade learning how to share their faith in another culture might have something to say to people who find themselves living in another culture than the one they used to live in. How do you talk to people about faith if they're from another culture? Because that's what's going on here. I mean, for everyone. There is no one who right now in America is like, oh, this is totally my home culture. This is like how I grew up. No, nobody grew up like this. It's new for everybody. So how in the world do you share your faith in a culture that's new to you? What does that look like? How does that work? One more quick thing before we dive in tonight. If you happen to be here and you're like new to church and checking things out, I'm going to talk about sharing your faith. And the deal is, I teach about cults. I study cults. I know what empty rhetoric looks like. I know what tricking people into a religion looks like. And if you hear anything like that coming out of my mouth, please come up afterwards and call me on it. I don't think that's what I'm going to do. I don't think that's what tonight's about. I just hope to say, this is what it looks like to share your faith. And I hope to do that openly and honestly. But if you feel like I'm giving out strategies and tricks of how we you know, connive people into the kingdom of God, come and call me on it afterwards. I would love to have that conversation and, and do this better. I like Christianity. It makes sense to me. C.S. Lewis, who I spent just a little bit of my spare time studying, said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That works for me. I study a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ways of viewing the world, and this one just makes the most sense. Out of every religious or non-religious way of viewing the world, this one makes the most sense. It explains the most. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, could you turn to Acts 17? And we'll put the stuff on the screens, but I promise you'll have more fun if it's in your hand too. Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, them being his friends who he left in Berea, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and, Sto and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods because in ancient Greece, they used bad British accents. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. And I love this little commentary by Luke here at the end. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing 
but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That sounds like fun with coffee or beer in hand. Paul's teaching in two places. He's teaching in the synagogue, the Jewish meeting area, and the marketplace, Greek agora, right? The place you don't like to go to if you have agoraphobia. So these are the meeting place of the Jews, the meeting places of the Greeks in Athens. And he's causing enough stir, enough people are paying attention to what this guy's saying, that he gets invited to the Areopagus, which is like where all the cultural elites hang out. This is where the thinkers go to talk about the best ideas. And yet, people called him a babbler. Did you see that? There's some resistance to what he's saying, but he's still invited to go speak. And so here's my big idea for tonight. I'm going to repeat this a whole bunch of times. Find where God is working and follow God's lead. Okay? If you want to figure out how to share your faith in another culture, find where God is working and follow God's lead. How does Paul know that God's leading? Well, because somebody asks him a question. Would you come tell us about all of this? We want to hear the things that you're saying. That's a pretty good indication that they want to hear the things that he has to say. May we know this new teaching that you're presenting. He's, he's just following this, this open door, all right? Look for open doors. I know it seems like every single door in the world is closed off right now. I get it. I do. But look for them. What does an open door look like? And what do we do when we find an open door? These are the two questions I want you to have in the back of your head as we read through the rest of this passage. What does an open door look like? And what do we do when we find an open door? If we don't answer those questions, we're going to be like that Southern Baptist evangelist that was knocking on doors. And finally, this little lady invited him in and said, hey, come on in, sit down. She says, you know, what would you like to talk about? And he's like, I don't know, I never made it this far. (laughs) Paul's been in town in Athens for several days waiting for his friends. And he's talking to people that he meets. And he's better than talking. He's reasoning. Look again at verse 17. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue. That word there, if we do a search online for a Bible dictionary, is the Greek word dialegomai. Dialegomai. Which we, we know the word dia means across. We hear it in the word diagonal, across from different angles. We hear it in diameter, right? Measuring the way Christ the way across, dia means across. Lego, of course, means small plastic brick. Um, no, Lego is most commonly translated talk, but the original metaphor is this word picture of concluding, laying down at the end of the day, the conclusion of the day when you rest, when you finally lay everything down. So the idea here is across plus conclusion. You're getting across conclusions. Now, if you look at that word again, you're going to see our word dialogue, which is a descendant of dialegami, all right? Paul is talking to people and getting conclusions across. But dialogue is a two-way street, right? Not monologue. In other words, he's sending and receiving. He is doing something called listening, which people used to know how to do. And we have all somehow forgotten. That's what he's doing. That's why the doors are opening. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's walking around, checking out the city. He is distressed to see the number of idols. He is a Jew. The second commandment says, don't make idols. And the city's full of them. And yet, even though he's in this city, even though he's distressed by all these idols that he encounters, he does the first lesson for us, which is he seeks to understand commonality. He assumes that there is some way to get through to people who grew up speaking Greek, which he learned along the way. His home language, though, his mother tongue was probably Aramaic. So speaking another language in another place, worshiping idols from an entirely different culture, and yet he's going around looking for commonality. He says, you're ignorant of what you worship, but I'm going to proclaim it to you. But before he says that, he says, hey, you like to worship? Me too. You, you, you like to like be religious? Me too. You want to know about God? Me too. You want to understand who this God is that you say you don't know? but you have an altar set aside for that God? Let me tell you about that God. He finds this point of commonality. That's not the way missions has always been done. In the 1500s, when missionaries went to Africa, I'm about to exaggerate grossly, they did not have a high amount of respect for the cultures that they encountered, okay? Now, I want to recognize the fact that these brave men and women did what they thought was the best. But the reality was they showed up and said something along the lines of, you guys are savages, your culture sucks. Here's a new and better culture, okay? Again, I'm exaggerating to make a point. Because of that, after 400 years of missions in Africa, after 400 years of missions in Africa, in 1955, there were 16 million Roman Catholics on the entire continent. There's a lot of people on the continent of Africa. 16 million is not very many. But today, there's 170 million Roman Catholics on the continent. And Catholicism is like one of the smaller groups of Christians on the continent. 100 years ago, 9% of the continent was Christian, which is not insignificant. Today, 50% of Africans. One out of two Africans call themselves a Christian. So what changed? What changed is theologians began to think differently about missions in the 1950s. They thought to themselves, perhaps we are going about this wrong. Perhaps instead of going into these cultures and pretending like we are showing up for the first time with any bit of truth, perhaps God has been working before we got here. Perhaps instead of us doing missions, God is doing missions and we are joining God. Do you see how this small but important shift will change everything? If it's not my job to show up and do something for the very first time, if God has already been at work, then it's my job to find where God is already working and join God on mission. Is it possible that our coworkers and neighbors and friends and family are already being whispered to by the God of heaven? 
Is it possible that the God of heaven actually loves those people more than you? Is it possible that that God sent his one and only son to die for them? Is it possible, is it possible that the people who disagree with us, the people who we feel most closed off from us, the people who frankly have no time for God or no time for Christianity are right in the center of the attention of the God of heaven who has been working in their lives, their entire lives. And perhaps if we looked, we might find a place where God is working and we could join God on that mission. Seek to understand commonality. This plan works in every culture because Christianity works in every culture, but most religions do not. Did you know that? If you were to get a map, we could go in North Africa in the Middle East and basically just draw a straight line over to Southeast Asia, and that is where 90% of all Muslims live. And if you were to take another line and go to East Asia and just go straight down, you would find that 88% of all Buddhists live there. And if we were to just draw a circle around India, you would find that 95% of all Hindus live in India. But if you want to do that same sort of thing for Christianity, you'll find that 25% live in Europe, 25% live in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% in Asia, although that number is growing, and 12% in North America. And the reason Christianity is spread out all over the world is because Christianity works all over the world. It works in cultures all over the world. There is no culture that has yet been encountered that Christianity doesn't work in. And so why can't it work here now? Did God stop caring about the United States when things started to get messy? When life got hard, when people stopped listening, when everybody started shouting? Do we think God's no longer interested in our neighbors and friends and coworkers and family? Of course God is. Of course God's still working. Our first job is to find the tiniest little bit of commonality like Paul does, as something as simple as an altar that says to an unknown God. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. I'm not ambidextrous. I can't hold a microphone and read at the same time. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the, old, the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay, second thing we need to do is we need to reframe understanding. We need to reframe people's understanding. Do you see the quote marks at the end? Paul's quoting philosophers and poets. What sort of philosophers and poets? Well, interestingly, there's Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and poets. Who are the two groups of people who had engaged him in the marketplace? Yes, Stoics 
and Epicureans. Now, as you all know, Stoics are famous for their Stoic philosophy, which hardens your heart towards suffering. Marcus Aurelius, the most famous philosopher from the Stoic school, said, every day I look at my son and say, tomorrow you may be dead. And that's how he dealt with suffering. He hardened his heart. He closed himself off. He's not going to suffer if his son dies because he has been preparing for it every single day when he wakes up. And the thing about that is that's not how most people want to wake up and look at their children in the morning. That doesn't really work with the human experience as we experience it. And so when this philosophy is popular and everyone's going, I guess we're supposed to be Stoics, and then Christianity comes along and says, no, we believe there's a God who suffers with us. That when we're suffering, we're not suffering alone, that God suffers with us and not only suffers with us, but sent his son to suffer, to, to, to understand it personally and to walk alongside of us through these things. That's how we think the world's supposed to work. The Epicureans are, are still around. They don't call themselves that anymore. No, they just, people call themselves materialists or relativists. But their whole philosophy is basically death is the end. And so live it up now. They especially wanted to live for pleasure, sexual pleasure being their most favorite of all of those. And so the Epicureans were living a life of pleasure. Here's what's crazy. Paul shows up in Athens. There's barely any Christians on the planet. He starts teaching to these guys, as we'll get to at the end of the story, barely anybody converts. And yet, these guys who have this really popular relativistic philosophy that's spread all over the entire Roman Empire, where people are living for pleasure and all they're trying to do is please gods by giving them food and giving them wine because you know, gods need you to give them food and wine, which Paul says that seems kind of contradictory. But, but these guys with this philosophy lose. 250 years later, half of the Roman Empire is Christian. This anything goes, live for pleasure philosophy, it, we all die and waste away at the end. That philosophy sucks. It's not how the universe works. And people are like, this is kind of shallow and hollow. And so Christianity comes in with a stricter sexual ethic and people are like, okay, loving your spouse, that makes sense. Caring about them, being committed to them, that's a version of reality that I think works. And Paul comes in and just gets at the very root of all of this. Why are you spending your time serving these gods as if they needed anything? That doesn't seem very godlike, does it? I mean, if they need you to give them food and wine, shouldn't they have like godlike powers if they're gods? Wonderful, quick bit of reframing that he does here. Let me tell you a couple quick stories, very quick stories. One, I was at Thanksgiving dinner a couple of months ago. Oh, by the way, you know what they call Thanksgiving in Mozambique? Just another Thursday. It's not a holiday there. Anyway, um, I met this girl. I didn't know her before. And she told me this crazy story about how her apartment was broken into, which was a common thing that happens in Mozambique. All of her electronics are stolen. She didn't want to go on this bus, but she had to go visit these people because she's a Fulbright scholar. I'm not going to give you the details. Anyway, she ends up on this bus in the middle of nowhere in Mozambique. This guy gets on the bus 
with her phone. How did she know it was her phone? Because I don't know if you knew this, but in the middle of nowhere in Mozambique, not many people have Google Pixel phones. So here he is with her phone in her case on this bus. And she's like, okay, I'm gonna confront him. She does, she finds out this guy bought it from somebody else. She and the guy and the police set up a sting. They nab the guy that broke into her apartment, okay? And she's just like, this is so unbelievable. I can't believe that the universe set it up that I'm in the bus with this guy. And I'm just gushing over this story and we're sharing stories of all of this stuff. And I'm like, hey, by the way, what do you mean when you say the universe set that up? Have you noticed how much people use the term the universe? Like go back 30 years ago, everybody says like, isn't it crazy God set this up or whatever, right? But now everybody likes to say the universe. Have you ever asked somebody what they mean when they say the universe? What a great sort of question if you're interested in leading other people to faith because they don't know what they mean when they say the universe. Of course they mean God, but they don't want to say God. And so they say the universe. Can't believe it. It's like an hour long conversation at Thanksgiving. Delightful conversation. Let me give you another one. I was um, talking to another friend. She's raised by incredibly strict Catholic parents and had a really, really bad experience. And she looked at me and she just said, absolutely seriously, and it, it really bothered her. She's like, why are, why are Christians such hate-filled jerks? And I'm like, you know, at this cultural moment, that is a perfectly appropriate question to ask. Why are Christians such hate-filled jerks? And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll answer, I'll, I'll try to address that. But let me, just, let me just ask one other question first. If you grew up in church, if you, if you listen to the Bible at all, is the, the hate-filled God that you're hearing about from your parents, does that line up with the God that Jesus was teaching about as you read it in the Bible? And, and she said, no, it doesn't. And, and we had a, a, several really great conversations. Reframing. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you guys are saying you're worshiping gods, but you have to serve them food and drink. That doesn't sound very godlike. They should be able to feed themselves. Let me just give you some questions I like to use with people. What do you mean when you say, fill in the blank? It's just a clarifying question. What do you mean when you say this? What do you mean when you say the universe? What do you mean when you say it wasn't fated to happen? How's fate work? Or my other one is, do you think this is that? You're talking about this. Is it the same thing as that? Or is that different than this? Again, these are just clarifying questions. We're just asking people to explain where they're coming from, what they think. This is the sort of stuff Paul's doing here. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, now the rubber meets the road. I mean talking about judgment is not the first thing that people like. And yet the reality is if we're going to share our faith, 
I'll, I'll say we need to reach some tough conclusions with people. This is messy. I hate this part, and yet it has to come. Now, probably in your first conversation with someone, you don't need to say that God set a day for judging the world. That's not essential in your first conversation. But we can't hide from the fact that it is part of our faith. And the reality is my experience is most people want to talk about this and they want a real answer to this. So the girl with the strict Christian parents just asked me flat out, do you believe in hell? And I said, yeah, I do. How in the world can a loving God send people there? And I said, because I don't think God wants to force us to spend time with them if we don't want to. She said she hadn't thought of it that way before. I said, as I see it, most people like to keep to themselves. They don't want to be bothered. And God can talk about love all God wants to. God can talk about a relationship all God wants to. God can keep bothering people, reaching out to people for their entire life. And if they choose to say, no, I don't want that. I don't want a relationship with you. I want to go my own way. I want to be my own person. God is not going to force them to be with God. God's going to say, here's another alternative. You can go be by yourself and lonely in that lonely by yourself place we call hell. In my experience, people know life is messy and they want answers. They really do. They know there's consequences for how life works and they want to know how those consequences play out. And it's our job to, it's our job to tell them. I have so many stories. I had this chiropractor a couple years ago, actually many years ago when I was here. I was hit by a car and I had to go see this guy and I saw him for like months. He knew what I was going. He knew what I was doing in Africa. I'm getting ready to go, have like a year left. He's trying to literally straighten me out before then. And then he says to me one day, he says, look, I've got a nun and two pastors in here and they are sharing their faith with me all the time. I know you're going to be a missionary. Why in the world haven't we had a conversation like that? And I said, oh, you don't want to have a conversation like that. He's like, well, let's pretend I do. And I said, well, you don't need Jesus. That's why we haven't had the conversation. He's like, what do you mean I don't need Jesus? I'm like, your life is perfect. You are a doctor of chiropractics. You have a thriving business that's award-winning, which is why I'm here. You get to work with your family members. You live in a giant house. You own horses. You have grandchildren running around here. Your wife loves you. Your life is perfect. It is completely put together. If you had cancer or something, we could talk, but you don't need Jesus. That's why I haven't talked to you about this. Immediately, he goes, my life's not so perfect. And then he opens up about some stuff and every other time I went in, he's, we're having these pastoral therapy sessions as he's telling me why his life is not perfect and why he needs Jesus. He's doing all of my work for me. From my experience, most people know that life has consequences. This, they're not scared of saying so. And eventually, you've got to tell them you're not doing somebody any favors by saying the philosophy you're living by has happy conclusions at the end of it. Sometimes we need to reach tough conclusions with people. All right, let's, let's finish the passage. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, 
a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Daenerys, Damaris, and a number of others. All right, last thought. Don't waste your time. I said, look for open doors. Sometimes doors are closed and don't waste your time when the door's closed. There's people sneering at Paul here. He is not following up with people who sneered at him. Don't waste your time. I bet it won't be hard when I say there may be people in your life who have closed their doors to you entirely. Others who maybe have just closed off certain conversations. Stop beating on those doors. Stop knocking on those doors. I mean, we we end up doing more damage by beating on these doors. Don't waste your time. Don't do it. Walk through open doors. If people keep asking questions, if people keep opening doors, walk through them. And the moment you hit a closed door, stop walking. That's how far God moved today. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Don't waste your time. Find out where God is working and follow God's lead. Where's God working in the people around you right now? Do you know where? Have you seen it? Have you found any open doors? Are you scared to death of this conversation? Is this conversation Bruno and we don't talk about Bruno? Honestly, I haven't met, talked to, hung out with a single person in ministry in America who doesn't look at me and say, you know, you kind of left at a good time. It's gotten real hard over the last decade. And I think everybody sitting in the room knows it's just been hard to follow Jesus in America over the last 10 years. And what I'm telling you is God did not stop working at any point in time over the last 10 years. I love this church because this church was founded by some people who had a theological imagination. They looked at a church that existed in the last century that was based on centuries before that and said, maybe we could do things a little bit different. Maybe we could actually approach this culture differently than it's been approached before now. And so they started TNL and it was, and I, I just love the idea of saying whatever it takes to reach this culture, we're willing to do. Let me back up and ask again, do you believe that God is at work in this culture right now, that God is opening doors, that there might be doors with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, that God's going to be opening even this week. And are you willing to step inside and see what happens? Some of you guys I know have have jobs or just circumstances in life. You don't have a lot of non-Christian friends. Very quickly, two places you should start hanging out. Number one, hot tubs. Everybody's a philosopher in hot water. I have had more spiritual conversations in hot water than I have anywhere except standing in a place like this. If you don't own a hot tub, get one, go to hot springs, go to your local gym and sit in hot water. You will be amazed at how people are willing to philosophize when they are soaking. (laughs) Number two, go outside, just go hiking, 
Go look at trees, look at rocks, look at stars. You will be amazed at how quickly people are willing to philosophize when they're outside of their normal routine. If you don't find yourself in these conversations regularly, find places that work for you where you find yourself in these conversations. And they don't need to be profound conversations. They just need to be the next step. People don't do what Jackie did. They don't just keep opening door after door after door after door. I've never in my life experienced that except one time with Jackie. Every other time I get one door, I get maybe two doors in a conversation and then the conversation takes another turn. That's okay, that's two doors. Who knows what the next person's gonna encounter when they have a conversation with that person. Walk through the doors that God is opening and believe that God still opens doors in every culture. Use your theological imagination. God is still at work. Paul entered a culture that was in many ways anti-Christian. Nothing about it was easy. Nothing made sense. Nothing was a natural transition to go from paganism and multiple gods and worshiping idols to a single God. N nothing makes sense about living this, this free life with all sorts of nonsense going on with the sexual ethics of the Roman world to a more strict sexual ethic. And yet it happened. After 250 years, the empire changed. Over 50% were Christian. I don't know, I, I, I can't see into the future. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I do know that God is still working here. God's working in Maputo, Mozambique. There's nowhere on earth. God is not at work. And he asks us, his people, to look for open doors and walk through them. Let me pray for us. God, I'm keenly aware at the nearly palpable sense of fear, discouragement, bewilderment, and doubt that all of us feel when we engage this topic. God, we so badly need your help. We're surrounded by people we love. We're surrounded by people we care about. And we exist in a culture that doesn't talk and doesn't listen very well. God, we know that all of any, any effort that we would put forward is completely fruitless without you. And so God, would you speak to us first? Would you light a spark in our hearts tonight? Would you fan it into flames? Would you encourage us? Would you open doors even this week for simple conversations just to remind us that it's possible? God, would you teach us to be the listeners that we want to find when we encounter other people? Would we be willing to really hear what they have to say, understand their perspective? And God, most of all, would you teach us to follow your lead in this and in everything else? We pray all this in Jesus' name.